You're listening to a message from Micaiah Ermler, lead pastor of Southridge Church in San Jose, California. This week's awesome message will start in a few seconds. But first, we hope you will stay connected with Southridge by liking us on Facebook or by following us on Instagram and Twitter. Search for the handle at Southridge Now and click the follow button so you can receive uplifting, encouraging content right in your feed. Thanks again for listening. And now, here is Pastor Micaiah. Good evening, Southridge. How's everybody doing? Great to see you. I hope everybody's had a great day so far. I want to be the first one to welcome you. If you are uh, new to uh, Southridge Church, we're so honored to have you here and just glad to be together. And if this is your first time, I want to say welcome. My name is Micaiah Ermler. I'm the pastor here at Southridge Church, and we're excited that you're here. We'd love for you to take a moment, and at the end of our service, uh, stop by our visitor center, where we would love to give you a gift to say welcome, thank you for being here, and love to ask you to fill out a connection card, uh, not only if you're a first-time guest, but also if you're a regular attender, because we would love to pray with you. Maybe there's a prayer request, maybe you want to join growth tracks, or maybe there's a question you have, just fill out that card, drop it in the uh, offering basket in the back, and we'd love to stay connected with you. And let's open our Bibles to the book of Joshua this evening, the book of Joshua, chapter number seven. And uh, looking forward to this season, we're coming up on the Easter season and just gearing up for what great things we believe God has in store. But let's take our Bibles to the book of Joshua. If you don't have it, we'll put it up on the screen for you. But I think there's something awesome about taking God's word in our hands, maybe grabbing a pen or a highlighter, and as God speaks to you, we write those things down that God is saying to us because we believe that when we come into his presence, that God has something he wants to say to each and every one of us. And I've said it many times, and I'll continue to say it, that note takers are history makers. So taking copious notes, you'll be glad you did. Uh, my son Austin each week will kind of help me out, and maybe it's an ego boost, I don't know. But he'll write the notes, and uh, he'll tell me what he wrote that week. And I just think it's great that even at a young age, they're already learning to, to write down what God is saying to them. And sometimes it's daddy preach better or daddy preach shorter. But uh, for the most part, it's pretty good stuff that he writes down. And I'm just glad to uh, be able to preach. And it's an honor and joy to be together. And we're in a new series entitled Divine Direction. Because you and I often are faced with the choice, how do we make good decisions? I mean, how do we go about that process of making good decisions? For some of us, Decisions are simply based on maybe experience that we know that that restaurant that we ate at last time, uh, we got a flu or a stomach bug or something. So we're like, nope, not going there. Experience. Sometimes it's from wisdom where maybe we've invited somebody into our life that's given us counsel where we say, hey, that's not the type of thing I want to be doing. And so many times we look back and we're trying to figure out how do we make good decisions, good choices. And today it seems like it's getting harder and harder to make good choices. You say, why is that? I think a lot of it has to do with the pressure of culture. I think culture is uh, hugely influential in a lot of our decision making. I believe a lot of it also comes back to the home. It used to be that we had a society that had stronger homes where those homes were nurturing and fostering the next generation to make wise decisions. But because of the fact that we have uh, divided homes or uh, absentee parents, 
there's not that structure where people can make decisions or be influenced in a proper way. So what's happening is we have a culture that is now raising our children, raising the next generation, and the next generation is being just bombarded with all kinds of unwise decisions. It's amazing. If you, now this isn't going to happen in the near future, but it used to be when you were a college freshman and you would step onto campus, say San Jose State, you know what they would have these little booths everywhere and they were credit card booths because they wanted you just as soon as you got there to just get you into all kinds of debt. And mom and dad weren't always there to say, hey, no, 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 you don't need that student debt. We're going to try to figure out a way. And they already making a poor financial decision. Or maybe it came to relationships. Or maybe it came to a business dealing. There's all types of decisions. Uh, I grew up in the day where you could still do a paper route. And I was surprised that uh, looking back on it, my parents at 10 years old would let me have a paper out, and I'd get up at 5.30 in the morning, and I'd deliver papers, and uh, I would do it with a buddy of mine. We'd get up real early and deliver papers, and uh, one morning, we found a wallet on the ground, and we opened up the wallets early in the morning, and uh, there was some drug paraphernalia inside the wallet. My friend was not a Christian, not a Christian guy at all, and he was about a year older than me. He was in, uh, I was in junior high. He was in high school. And immediately he knew what it was, and uh, I just figured that, hey, that's not good. And I'm so glad, looking back on that moment, that even though he wasn't necessarily a Christian person that followed what you and I might follow, his first instinct was, let's throw this away. Let's get this as far away from us as possible. And I think how different my life could have been if he would have been a different type of friend, a different type of person. Because our friends also influences our choices. Some of you have gone places, done things, been around people, and it's all because of a friend. And so our choices today, we're faced with difficult choices. So how do you and I make better decisions? We looked at last week that too often we don't follow God's will when it comes to choices. We follow our whims. And our whims are constantly changing. They're constantly in flux. And so we want to look at How do we make wise decisions? Because when we don't have the right influence, we don't have the right input, then we start making unwise decisions. And we get directions that are unclear. I don't know about you, but has anybody ever tried to give you directions pre-Google, pre-Siri, pre-GPS navigations? And it's one of those types of directions where it's like, hey, Go down three blocks, and you're going to see a yellow trash can on the side. Take a right, and then make it the first immediate U-turn. And then you're going to see the uh, the whatever store, and you're just like, bro, no, this is not going to work. I'm going to get lost. Because when directions are unclear, the destination's uncertain. And that's kind of where culture has us today. Unclear directions, and the destination is uncertain. When it comes to marriage, when it comes to your life, when it comes to the future of our country, it just seems like so much is unclear. And so we wonder and we're surprised by the fact that the destination is an uncertain destination. So we want to know, how do we make better choices? Because you and I are going to be confronted with, do we follow divine direction or our desires? Those are the two things that it's ultimately going to come down to. Last night, I went to the very, the very first time the House of Prime Rib. Anybody been to House of Prime Rib? 
Amazing place, right? It's just, it's, it's amazing. If you're a local Bay Area resident, I suggest you go. It was great. It was awesome. All right, the prime rib was definitely worth the drive, definitely worth the trip. It was excellent. Had a great time. But when it comes to a destination, when it comes to a decision, too often we are making these decisions based on a whim and it's uncertain, but we need to make a decision based on divine directions. I was staring at that menu and what I was, the whole thing was all about desire. It wasn't, hey, later on, hey, you're not gonna feel so good about eating all that. No, no, it was just like, hey, I'm gonna do what just feels good in the moment, right? And then later on the moment comes back to bite you. That seems like culture today, right? Like we're just kind of, oh, we just wanna live in the moment. I had a college president and he would always say, say to us at Bible college, he would say, students, there's two choices on the shelf, pleasing God and pleasing self. And today, if I had to put a title to this message, it is simply this, the shelf. So if you're taking notes, you can title this message, the shelf, because that's what it all comes down to. When you and I are going to make decisions, we have to, in our mind, picture a shelf, and there's two decisions on the shelf. Am I going to please God or am I going to please myself? Because there's divine direction, but then there's my desires. And too often my desires don't always coincide with God's divine direction for my life. Because I see something and the moment I see it, all of a sudden the desire kicks in. And then the desire, if it's not a holy desire, one that's influenced by God, it can lead me astray. But what happens today is God is not always first on the shelf. I like this shelf because it's got a top shelf and it's got a bottom shelf. And today, when it comes to God, many of us agree that God should be front and center. That God should be the first place. That God should take priority. We, we would all pretty much agree with that. Wouldn't we agree with that? It's okay to talk back to me. We'd all agree that God should front and center, right? Yeah, we agree with that. But the problem is our desires kick in. And our desires take over, and they're not bad desires. You'll say, you know what? Hey, I just, I just really need to get that degree. I just got to get my degree, and, and right now I got to focus on my degrees. Maybe you're a still a student. Maybe you're in college. Maybe you're a master's student. But you just say, hey, this is, this is going to take up all my time, the next four or five years of my life. I just got to prioritize. And it's all about school. Everything you're doing is about school. And then suddenly this kind of gets pushed over because now school is taking front and center place because education has become an idol in our, in our society, for sure. And it didn't just stop at the gates of the church. It's now permeating the church where we've now put education. Now, mind you this, uh, I'm all about a good education. Even though I was homeschooled, I still think you should get an education, all right? No offense against homeschoolers. Hopefully your homeschool was better than my homeschool, okay? Mine was just lousy, all right? But we put a priority on education, and education starts to take over. And then some of us, we, we didn't say, oh, you know what? I'm dating, I'm engaged, I'm married, and all of a sudden family kicks in. And it's great to have a family. It's great to have a spouse. It's great to have these things. But what happens is these start taking over the top shelf. Now, are these sinful things? No. But you will find that good things will soon crowd out godly things. So, but it doesn't just stop there. All of a sudden, we just keep going. And then we say, you know what, but I got to make some money. 
I gotta have a little bit of money in my life. And some of us start taking money and then it starts to crowd out those things that we say are the most important because we've let the shelf of self start to take over. But it never just stops. All of a sudden, we're like, well, I need some of the latest toys and gadgets. I just need some cool stuff in my life, you know. What's wrong with all these things? I like this stuff. And it never just stops. Some of us are gadget people. Maybe you're a musician, and you're like, man, I just love music. Sorry, you can laugh, but yes, I'm not necessarily a ukulele player, but I just thought it was a cool thing to buy one day at Guitar Center. So we just have all these things, and what's happening to God? We're like, man, there's not a lot of room on this shelf because after all I even have a new car I got a car payment so that's got to take over and then we've got things like technology so we've got to keep up with all the tech gadgets and then pretty soon we're like you know what God you just you gotta you gotta go down there God I still love you I still need you but my shelf of self I've become a shellfish I know all week guys all week I worked on that one thank you Jacob and Jillian gave me a laugh out of that one. All right, we've become a shellfish. That's right. Because why? This is the shelf of self, and this is what most of us do, to be honest. All right? And myself included. Don't think I'm excluding anybody. But wait a minute. Don't we we all agree that God should be first and foremost? Don't we believe in Matthew 6, 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you? But yet it's so amazing how we pack this full. And this is barely scratching the surface. Let's be honest. Career's not on here. Children necessarily on here. Sports is not on here. Fitness isn't on here. Food's not on here. There is so much more that we've packed on the top shelf. But here's what's amazing. You and I would say all of these are important. All of these. But these things are at war These are desires that are at war with divine direction. And we look at America today. We look at the church today. And we step back and we say, what happened? Because we allowed ourselves to believe the excuse that these good things can take the place of the ultimate thing, which is God. That's why traveling sports leagues took over on Sundays. It used to be that Sunday was the Lord's day. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a home that on Sunday we weren't allowed to go to anybody's house. You didn't watch TV. You didn't play sports. We were never in a traveling league because my parents taught us that Sunday's still the Lord's day, that this is God's day. Who started to take over Sunday? NFL took over. PGA started to take over. I mean, some of us remember that you could barely find a store that was open on Sunday. But now everything's open. I drove by this morning and I saw even UPSs working and, and, and all these other places that used to be closed. What is happening with culture? And yet the church, the Christians, we've allowed it and we've normalized it. And we kind of think, well, yeah, that, that's kind of okay. And then we're shocked and we shouldn't be shocked at the state of where we're at today. We should not be shocked. We should not be shocked because we've allowed this shelf of self to replace everything. Because there's only two choices on this shelf. Pleasing God and pleasing self. But yet, if all of us were truly honest, God is not top shelf. And I get it, you're here at church, and I commend you for being at church. You say, well, I'm at church and it's 5 o'clock and I'm tired. I commend you. But it's not enough for you just to say, God, I gave you one hour on a Sunday to think that God is now priority in your life. 
This is one hour out of 163 hours. You do the math. Is God truly front and center? When you take into the equivalent that you and I work on average 50 to 60 hours a week, a week. if you're a student, you are probably in school 30 to 40 hours a week. And yet you're saying God is a priority because you spent one hour with him on a week day and you're wondering why there's this battle where you're not sensing God's divine direction in your life? It's because we still as a culture by and large put everything first before we put God. So tonight the key is how do we put God back into that place that he belongs? How do we make sure that God is back on the top shelf where we get back to the point where these things go back in their order? These are not wicked things. These are not wrong things. We didn't even bring up sin. We didn't even bring up the sin that holds you and I back. James, or excuse me, Hebrews talks about laying aside the weight and the sins that hold us back. We didn't even talk about sins. This is just the good stuff. We didn't bring into, into the fact that we've got jealousy in here. We've got lying up here. We've got lust in here. We've got all kinds of things that we could put up here as far as sin. We're just talking about the stuff that just pushes God out of our life. That's at war with God. So what do you and I do? What should we turn for this divine direction when we're faced with this? Because many of us are the reason we're not following God, and here's why. Because you're saying this question to yourself, and I believe this question is from the devil. Doesn't God want me to be happy though, pastor? That's why we continue to return to our desires. Because there's this question in our mind that we ask, but, but doesn't God want me to be happy? And the problem, you're thinking, oh, this is so clever because God cares about my happiness. Because you grew up in an environment, you've listened to enough worship songs that it's all about you. That you think the church revolves around you. And we've created church so comfortable. And I love the fact that we have heated uh, auditoriums and air-conditioned auditoriums. I love that we have padded pews. I love that we've got rich kids for our children. I love that we've got gifts for visitors. I love that we do pie Sunday. We need to bring that every Sunday. Church is just better with a little bit of pie and some whipped cream and some coffee after church. It's just a great thing. But what have we done? We've said church is all about me my comfort and my feelings and some of us are like well if you keep me comfortable then you keep me happy and then I'll keep tipping God not tithing that's the problem because you think and you ask yourself this question doesn't God want me to be happy so that's how you justify your lifestyle it's how you justify your actions it's how you justify your thinking it's how you justify your believing because your thinking is God wants me to be happy so this lifestyle makes me happy so therefore God is happy with it and that's what culture is doing. Well, uh, I had this habit. I like this habit. I'm not going to give up this habit. And God wants me to be happy because he loves me. He made me. So I'm just going to keep doing this. And that's what a lot of us are doing in this room. But your biggest problem is that the question is so off. See, your question is built on a faulty assumption that you could not be happy with just God. When you ask yourself the question, doesn't God want me to be happy? You are framing your entire life around the fact that God is not enough. Let's play that argument out. I've been happily married for 12 years. What if tomorrow I wake up to my wife and say, hey babe, I love you and I know you love me. 
And I know you care about my happiness. And she's an amazing wife. She's a wonderful wife. She would say, yeah, I really do. I'd say, okay, well, uh, one woman's just not enough for my happiness. All of you are thinking right now, oh, you don't. You better not have a shotgun in the house. She's going to kill you. Yes, she will. She will. She's Filipino, so they take a chanel and then they beat you to death with it, okay? That's the real Filipino way, okay? That's how I'm going to die, all right? It's going to be a chanel to the head, all right? It's going to be lodged three inches in my skull. That's how I'm going to go out. Or it'll be stiletto, okay? One of those is taking me out, all right? She doesn't need no gun. You see, but yet we do the same thing with God. We say, God, I need this in my life to be happy because, God, you're just not enough. When the psalmist said, oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. More often than not, we quote the verse without ever practicing the verse. We know the verse, we've got it memorized, but yet we never actually put it to the test that God, I know that you can ultimately satisfy, but we've never truly test, put it to the test. So we're looking for other alternatives. So we've got this shelf of self. And our desires are influenced and informed by culture more than they are by Christ. And we focus more on happiness than on holiness. And we wonder why so many of us are so miserable. You think culture is honestly happy? Do you think Governor Cuomo is honestly happy right now? Do you think Governor Newsom is happy right now? Do you think these actors are happy right now? The, they, for a while, they can project this image. They're not happy. Do you think some of the people in this church are happy? You will never find true happiness when this is your life, when your life is focused on the shelf of self. You say, well, how do we break it? I'm glad you asked. Your Bible's open to Joshua chapter 7. Notice if you would, verse number 1. Joshua 7, verse number 1. Here's what the word says. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about Two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people. But they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about thirty-six men, for they chased them from the gate as far as Shebron and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord unto evening. He, the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought these people over the Jordan at all to deliver us in the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Oh, that we have been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off the na thy, our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Wow. Wow. Did you not just catch that? Do you see, this is Joshua, Moses' right-hand man. 
The man that had this tenacious faith, the man that the Bible said was of a different spirit, Here's Joshua saying, crying out to God, God, it's your fault these 36 men had died. You shouldn't have brought us over the Jordan River. God, why wouldn't we have just been content? And what does God say to him? Get up. Get up. I feel like that's what God needs to say to some of us. Because we find ourselves, oh, Lord, what's going on with my problems? What's going on with our country? What's going on with all these things in the government? What's going on with my children? What's going on with this? And God's like, hold on. Hold on, we'll get to that, but first, there's a deeper problem we got to deal with. We will deal with all that, but first, right now, you're smoke screening. You say, what's a smoke screen? You're trying to deflect from the real issue, Joshua. And God lays it out. God's not going to pull his punch in. Notice, he says, why do you lie on your face? Verse 11, Israel has sinned, and they have transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived, and they have put among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore, unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. Get up. Sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. What's just happened? Joshua chapter 6, we read it last week. This is where the children of Israel, they marched around the walls of Jericho 13 times. They encircled the city. On the 13th time, they blew the ram's horn, and this people shouted, and the walls fell down. The people went into Jericho, and they subdued Jericho. Only people that left were those that were there at Rahab's uh, uh, home and her family. Those are the only people that survived. But God had told the people that all that you conquer in the land is theirs except for Jericho. Because God wants his first. That's why we bring the first fruits. We bring the tithe to God. God says, hey, the first is mine. And so what happened was the children of Israel, by and large, obeyed except for one man. The man by the name of Achan. And we're going to get to his story. But Achan, he's tempted. And his desires got in the way of God's divine direction. God's divine direction was clear. Jericho is mine. Everything else in the land is yours. But this is mine. You see, God is very clear what he wants for his church. He's very clear that we're supposed to be a pure bride because we are the bride of Christ. God is clear how he wants his church to operate. God is clear with what he wants. But yet today, because desire has crept in more than following God's divine will, we've now seen that the church looks more like the culture than the bride of Christ. That the church is more influenced by culture than we are by the word of God. And so we're, we're, we're kind of shocked when we look at this next generation, the things that they agree with and the things that they vote for, the things that they side with. It's because for too long we have neglected what God's word says. And I believe this evening God is speaking to you and I like he spoke to Joshua and said, hey, get up. We got to deal with something because you and I are perfectly fine with, hey, let's talk about these little surface issues. Let's talk about how to be good neighbors. And that's a good thing to talk about, how to be a good neighbor. I understand that. But let's State Farm deal with being a good neighbor. And how about you and I deal with how to be a good Christian? Let's just get back to you and I right now. I get it. You and I are like, well, don't we need to reach the world? Yes. But we need to reach the church first right now because the church is in trouble. You and I are in trouble because we have switched that God used to be on the top shelf 
And that's point number one if you're taking notes. The top shelf. Because that's what God is saying to Joshua. Hey, I'm not first in Israel. And here's what's amazing. In verse number one, something powerful, and I don't know if you caught it. It says, but the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed thing. How many of you remember how many people stole something? Just shout it out. How many people stole something? Just shout it out if you remember the number. One, why does God hold the whole Israelite family accountable? Because all actions have a reaction. Because when one person in this body suffers, the whole body suffers. And for too long, the church has acted like, well, that's just their issue and that's just their problem instead of saying, oh, no, that's our problem. We've got to deal with that. That's all of us. That's just not them. That's us. I've got to help them. I've got to do what I can, and I've got to change to help that person. God is holding all of us accountable for what we do at the top shelf. You see, there's only two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. And our culture has told you and has told you and I, fill the top shelf with everything you want and let God just bless it. Name it and claim it, blab it and grab it and fill this top shelf with all the good things in life. That's why we have no problem skipping church, skipping the word. We have no problem with missing fellowship because we said, after all, doesn't God want me to have a career? Doesn't want God to have an education? Doesn't God want me to have, a, you know, a family? Doesn't God want me to have some nice things in my life? Doesn't God want this? Yes, but it cannot be the priority because what these things come, turn into is an idol. And some of us spend more time with these things than with the most important thing. And if you and I would get back to spending more time with God, he will realign our hearts to put these things in their proper place. Not out of place, proper place. God is not saying, hey, throw it out. God is not saying get rid of it unless it's sinful. Then you need to get rid of it. But God is saying let's put things in their proper place, not out of place. That's what he's telling the children of Israel right here. He's saying, you guys have stolen the accursed thing. And if you want to continue to go forth and conquer the promised land, you need to deal with this. And Joshua is a godly leader who says, we're going to deal with it. But too often, the closer you and I get to a destination, the greater the temptation to take shortcuts. Here's what's amazing. The children of Israel just conquered Jericho. A few days later, and they're going to go attack Ai. And God gives clear instructions that whatever they conquer after Jericho, they get to keep. If Achan would have waited maybe two or three days, he would have gotten everything. Because the Bible says this in Proverbs 10, The blessing of the Lord maketh rich, and he adds no sorrow. God is not trying to enrich your life and then do a got you and rip it from you. God is not trying to ruin your life. He's saying, I have a divine order. But yet you and I, we can't point fingers outside at culture and say they got marriage wrong and they've got education wrong and they've got government wrong when you and I don't even have the shelf laid out correctly. Let's put God back on the top shelf. Let's say, God, this is cleared for you. This is yours. This is the Lord's day. And just like Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We need to get back to that decision. And until we do that, the nation won't change. We've got to say this top shelf belongs to God. But yet you and I, we, we take shortcuts, don't we? I love a shortcut. I can't tell you how many times I love a shortcut. 
I'm the dude that if I'm stuck in traffic, I'm looking for a frontage road. You know what a frontage road is? It's a road that runs parallel to the freeway with all the traffic. And I love to be that guy that gets on the frontage road and just cruises right on past everybody. And then I kind of do this. Like, as I'm, as I'm passing everybody, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm snarky like that. I'm kind of messed up like that. And hopefully you don't see me in, and this is why we don't do Southridge bumper stickers, all right? Because I don't want anybody thinking that's a Southridge church member, so we ain't going to do none of that, all right? So, but I'm that type of person. But many times on my way to taking a shortcut, my amazing wife that God has blessed me with, that is like next akin to the Holy Spirit in my life, it says, I don't think this is going to work. And I'm like, watch me, baby. And uh, I don't drink, so I can't say, hold my beer. So I just kind of like have to, uh, watch me, babe. And then I do it, and she's like, mm-hmm. She just sits there and just waits. And I'm on my frontage road, and the frontage road dead ends. Oh, man, frontage road dead ends. Now i got to go all the way back. And then I just went like this, all those people. And so then they're not going to let me in. So I'm going to be stuck there on the side of the road. And now it's going to take me double the time. And I can't tell you how many times I thought the shortcut would be faster. But mark this down. Write it down. If you take a shortcut, you're going to get cut short. Because Aiken becomes bacon. You say, what do you mean? Read the text. You say, what do you mean? This is sad. Verse 25. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire, and they stoned them with stones. Achan thought, I'm taking a shortcut. I'm just going to get what God has for me because I want mine now. I just can't wait. I I can't wait till I'm married to to be intimate. No, no, I I want it now. I can't wait. I can't wait for these things. I want it now. I can't wait for a raise. I'm going to steal from my boss now. I, 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 can't, I can't wait till God uh, leads me to the right place. I just got to take it now. And we live in a culture that has just said, I want mine now. And that's a large problem what's happening in America. We just think, we just, I just need it now. I just need it instant. Some of the best things that God is doing is he's preparing them. He's getting them ready. That's what he said in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there, you may be also. And some of us are like, God, can you come quickly, Lord? Do you not see what's happening? God, please come quickly. And God's like, oh, I'm getting something ready for you. You, you, you'd be glad that I'm working on some things. You're going to be glad that I'm preparing some things. You're going to be happy. You see, here's the problem, folks, and we need to listen, and we need to listen good. Now yells louder than later, but later always lasts longer. We're in a culture that says, I just got to have it now. I can't wait. I just got to have it. And we don't ever learn to wait on those things that God has for us. Come on, if you have children and you just pulled out some fresh chocolate chip cookies out of the oven and you put them on top of the stove and when somebody reaches for them, you slap their hand and say, hey, they're not ready yet. They're going to burn you. And then a few seconds later, you see a little crying kid with tears coming down their eyes and chocolate around their face and they're crying because the chocolate burnt their face. Or it's a grown man who's, who shouldn't have done that and he's crying to his wife and saying, I'm burning the chocolate. And she says, I told you so. And then she tries to hit you with a chinella. It's just a friend I had that told me that that happened. Just a friend. We could pray for him. You know, the Bible, Jesus says, hey, you have sinned and you've taken the accursed thing. Sin means to miss the mark. But God doesn't stop there and say, hey, he didn't just miss the mark. He said, you've created a transgression. Do you know what transgression means? A transgression means you've stepped over the line. And many of us feel like, I haven't sinned, God, but you've stepped over the line. God has laid out clear lines for the church, and the church is stepping over them. 
The church is, is stepping over lines that God put up for our protection. These aren't just lines. These are barriers. But yet I see people crossing them. And you warned them and you warned them. And for too long I was praying this week. I was saying, God, why do I see so many Christians ruining and hurting their lives? Why do so many Christians suffer? And then it came to me as I was listening to preaching. Because I've done it and I've done what other preachers do. We feel like it's our job to protect you from feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So we don't preach messages that might convict you. We won't talk about clear sin. We won't talk about a hell. We won't talk about marriage between a biological man and a biological woman. We won't talk about what the scripture says against LGBTQ stuff. We won't talk about it because we don't want you to ever feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And yet many times people say, as soon as I feel conviction, I'm going to go find a church that doesn't bring that conviction of the Holy Spirit. And if you find a church that doesn't have the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which means the presence of the Holy Spirit is not there, which means you should not be there either. Because you don't want to be a place that the presence of the Holy Spirit is not. I want to be in his presence. I want to be a place where, yes, at times, I need the conviction in my heart. I need to be brought to tears over my sin. I need to be reminded of some things. But yet we live in a culture where no longer do we put God in the top place. And we live in a culture where you and I can go to church month after month, year after year, and never feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And when we do, we feel like, that pastor probably just been watching a little bit too much Fox News. What's wrong with him? Man, I don't know what got into him. Maybe, maybe he and his wife had a fight and they threw chinelas at each other or something. And maybe that's why he's mad. He's taking out on us. I'm, that's not the Holy Spirit. And yet we're shocked when we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When we feel his correction in our life. When we, when we feel that, that, that God is saying, you've stepped over the line. It's time to correct that. And we should be able to come to church and say, God, is there an area this week where I've stepped over the line? Yes, sin is to miss the mark, but transgression is to step over the line. And you and I, let's be honest, culture has stepped over some big lines, hasn't it? But before we point the finger at culture, we've got to first say, what about the church? What about me? What about my family? What have I allowed on the television? What have I allowed on the iPad? What have I allowed into my life? What is hidden in my cupboards? What is hidden under my bed? What are those things that I've allowed in my life? And so God is not front and center. He is not on the top shelf. Once again, God needs to be on the top shelf. But we pull an Aiken and we hide these things in our tent. And Achan does the exact same thing that the book of James warns us against. You see, what happened in the book of James? You see, the book of James, it says this, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire, what's in competition against divine direction? Desire. But when desire has conceived, it gives birth to something. It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings death. Oh, my friend, that's exactly what Achan did. And that's what exactly the writer says that you and I need to be careful of. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Achan committed all of those. Why? Because he looked a little bit too long. It wasn't the look, it was the longing. Now, I used to look at that past, and I used to get mad because Achan, along with all his family, sinned. 
And some of us, we've been schooled by maybe some liberal theologian or maybe by some secularist by saying, isn't that an awful God, a vengeful God? Look what he did to Achan's family. He wiped out all of Achan's family. Did you know in Deuteronomy that God made an allowance in the law for innocent family to not be punished? You say, what are you saying, pastor? I'm saying his family was not innocent. They were complicit. They helped him hide it. All of them. I would dare say many of us, when it comes to our sin, we have somebody that's complicit with us in it. And if you have friends that keep you in that sin, it's time you get new friends. And if you have friends that are pulling you back into this complicit behavior where you're crossing over the line and you say, I can't control myself on Fridays when we go to that place, then guess what? Don't go to that place. Don't be around those people. Put up some boundaries so you don't step over the line and commit a transgression. But yet in the church, we don't do that. We say, I'm trying to minister to him, Pastor. I had somebody tell me once that, oh, I just feel like I need to go to this bar so I can minister to these type of people. I said, you have no business there because I know your background and your history, and that is unwise for you because that desire is going to pull you back into something in your past. It's not good for you, and it's going to replace God being on the top shelf. So we see, first of all, that God needs to be top shelf. But sadly, God doesn't. Here we see wrong desires become detrimental. One man sinned, but 36 people paid the price of that sin, didn't they? Isn't it amazing the damage one Christian outside of God's will can create? When I read that, I was scared. Because one pastor outside of God's will, what kind of hurt can he cause to the church? Hey, one Christian at Southridge Church outside of God's will, what kind of hurt and damage can they cause? I can't tell you the number of times that we've had families not just leave in one person, but they take people with them. One person outside of God's will created havoc and got other people to go down and do the wrong thing with them. Because misery loves company. And we never like to sin in a vacuum. We never like to sin by ourselves. We always got to bring other people down with us. So we need to make sure, God, I want to be right with you because it can have uh, devastating effects beyond just me. Because every action has a reaction. Aiken's family died and 36 other men died. Not only did just 36 men die, there's now 36 homes that dad is not coming back. Because if one man wanted some gold, some shekels of silver, and a goodly Babylonian garment, he said, man, I just want these things on the top shelf. What's wrong with that? And God said, nothing's wrong with these things. They can't be top shelf. They've got to be in their proper place. You say, Pastor, then what do we do? Write this down. You need a clean shelf. Just clean the shelf. It's time to say, God, I'm wiping it all off. I'm clearing this shelf. I'm getting it ready for what God wants to do. I'm getting it ready for a new work that God wants to do in my life. I'm going to shine this up. I'm going to pile this up because I want to see God work. God, I I want to see you work in my marriage. I want to see you work in my parenting. God, I want to see you work in my job. I want to see you work in my business. God, I want to see you work in in my church. I want to see you work in my country. I want to see you work in my city. I want to see you work in my coworkers. I want you to see you work in this world. But to do that, God, i got to prepare my shelf for you. I've got to clean it because that's what God told to Joshua. He said, sanctify the people. He said, don't 
just deal with Achan, sanctify the whole people. I thought in Joshua chapter number five, when they were all circumcised, God sanctified them. He said, no, you transgress. So guess what? We got to clean it again. We've got to come back to this place and clean the shelf. And that's what the church has to do. If one of us in Southridge Church sins, guess what the church needs to do? Clean the shelf. God wants our church a holy, chaste, pure bride. That's what God wants for his church. That's what God requires. That's what God is looking for. God is looking for a church that says, God, you're top shelf. It's all about you. And that's when a church can truly sing, Lord, I need you. Because God, these things that everywhere around me says, I got to have these things. Everybody says, I got to have these things. But Lord, I want to know what you want me to have. And it's going to be hard because your desires are going to creep up and your desires are going to fight against God's will. And so you need to get in a life group. You need to get in a Bible study where people are saying, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and keep God front and center of your life. This is what we need in this day and age where people once again return that God is top shelf. But to do that, we got to clean the shelf. But yet, Achan is not the only person that suffered here. You know, success had given the nation of Israel a false sense of security, had it not? I mean, notice verse number two. Joshua knows that they've got to go attack Ai, this small little city. So he consults one of his generals, one of his leaders, and he says, hey, go spy out the land. Sounds familiar, right? The man comes back and he tells Joshua, don't let the whole army go. Just let a couple thousand go. We got this, Josh. And Joshua's like, all right, yeah, we've worked hard. It's been a rough season. Let's just send a few. And then they get their little rear ends whooped and stomped, and they come crying back. And they come running back to Joshua. And then Joshua falls before God, and God, and he's saying, God, why did you do this? What did you do, God? Why did you lead this? You see, what happened, you see, Joshua went from God-confidence at Jericho to self-confidence. And you and I do the same thing. You walk into that job interview, and you think, I've done this before. I got this. I don't need to pray about this. You walk into your marriage, you're like, man, everything's going good. I don't need to pray for my spouse. Everything's going good with the kids. I don't need to pray for the kids. The great preacher of the past, John R. Rice, said this, every failure is a prayer failure. You see, the Bible says, pray without ceasing. Did Joshua consult God about Ai? After the fact. But only to blame God. Not to say, God, should we go to battle against Ai? What should we do? What's the battle plan? What's the strategy? God gave him a strategy for Jericho. It was unusual, but it worked. But here Joshua assumed he won the battle. And you and I make the same mistake. We assume, I got this. I know how to make my marriage work. I know how to make my parenting work. And we don't humble ourselves before God and say, Lord, I need you. We don't, we sang that song. You all got amazing voices, by the way. I love hearing you sing. I love it when the instruments drop out. We sing it. But do we really practice it? I mean, come on, we're going to get in our cars. We're not going to pray about, hey, Lord, help me just have a safe drive home. We don't even think about driving home. We just drive home. We don't even think that God probably held back accidents, probably kept the way clear for us. And tomorrow we just get up and just think, oh, it's another day, another Another breath in my lungs, another heartbeat in my chest, I'm good to go. We don't stop to think, God, I need you. I need your help. They said it's a small, little, easy thing. He listened to the spies and not the Savior. Here's what the Bible says. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. But yet, what does the church keep doing? We just kind of do our own plans. We just kind of keep thinking, 
No, I, I got this. I know what the church should do. I know what we need to do to grow the church. We just need a fire worship team. That will grow the church. Can I tell you how many conferences I've been to where that's exactly what they said? Just get some good worship. That will grow the church. You know why those conferences say that? Because it works. It works. And then when the worship team leaves, guess what happens? All those people. They follow the worship team. Oh, you just need a celebrity preacher. Sorry, guys, you don't have one. Uh, just get a celebrity preacher, and man, it'll grow. Yeah, you do it. You know why they say that? It works. The arm of the flesh profits little. It does a little bit. And yet we just keep doing it instead of saying, God, what is your way? Is it 13 times around Jericho? That sounds crazy, but yet we're going to do it. We're going to trust in you. We're going to seek you. We're going to seek your face. We're going to do things as you want them. You see, they took action without prayer. And action without prayer simply is atheism. Let me say that again and let it sink in. Action without prayer is atheism. Y'all don't look like atheists to me. You're in church. A lot of you got Bibles. If you don't have a Bible in your hand, you got it on your phone. But how many times? You and I go days, days, and days without prayer. He said, Pastor, I had dinner, and guess what? I prayed over dinner. Come on, don't do that. Don't do that. You know at dinner you're not like, God, forgive me for the lustful thought. God, forgive me for lying and yelling at my wife and my kids. You're not crying out to God and repenting over the dinner table because everybody would freak out. They'd be like, whoa, I'm going to come back. I'm going to go eat in the living room. I'm going. It might be a good thing, but let's be honest. When's the last time you had, had, had a moment, it was you and God, and you didn't care what happened. You didn't care if snot was running down your nose, you were crying, but you were pouring your heart out to God because you needed God in that moment where you said, hey, action without prayer is just atheism, and I can't keep doing that. He needed a plan. But to discover God's plan, this is where you're like, hey, help me discover God's plan. I don't know what God's will is. Can I say this? God's will you can discover it, but to discover it, you've got to uncover it. You say, isn't that the same thing? No. God has made his will so abundantly clear to you and I in his word. And his word works if we'll work it. If we'll study it. If we'll read it. If we'll store the Bible in our heart. If we'll put the Bible back on the shelf. The Bible says, the spirit of truth, when he has come, he will guide you into all truth. We have the Holy Spirit. He'll guide us. We're running out of time. Please write this down. Until you face God, you're not ready to face your enemies. That's ultimately what God was saying. Until you face God, you're not ready to face your enemies. That's what verse 11 truly is all about in 12. God is trying to say, hey, you need to face me. God says to him, get up, sanctify the people. Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow. Because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. And I know that sounds intimidating. I know that sounds chill, uh, challenging. But remember when you were in grade school and the teacher said, go to the principal's office. What was your spirit? What was your demeanor at that moment? Yeah, principal's office. Yeah, what's up? Principal O'Shea Hannity, yes. No. You're like, oh, man. My mom would always say this. She would say, go to your room, wait till your dad gets home. It wasn't like, yes, my room with my Xbox, my PlayStation, yes. It was, 
oh, I'm going to die. It's going to be worth in a chinella to the head. It's, this is over. My life is over. I'm eight years old. I never got to live, never got to kiss a girl, never went on a date, never done anything, didn't get my driver's license. My life is over. But yet, when it comes time to meeting with God face to face, we don't have those. There sometimes needs to be those moments where we allow the Holy Spirit to take us to the proverbial woodshed. Say, God, just deal with my heart. Just root out all the bitterness, all the anxiety, all the, all the, all the anger, all the panic, all the frustration, all, all the jealousy, all the rage. God, you got to deal with this. I'm tired of carrying this. I'm tired of how it messes up that relationship, and I'm tired of how it affects that person. Because all these things that you and I hoard inside of us, it affects everybody. It affects your work. It affects your family. It affects your church. Everything it affects. We think we can sin in a vacuum, and we don't. Be sure your sin will find you out. And yet we live in a society where we just think, nope, I don't need to fear sin. I don't need to worry about it. God loves me after all. Yes, he does. But God is saying, top shelf, clean the shelf. See, today, people talk about shelf life, referring to how long something will last. And they'll say, oh, man, this thing and that thing has shelf life. It's amazing that Christians don't have shelf life. Why are we a flash in the pan? Why are we on fire one moment and out the next? Why do we go cold and callous? Why is the church so duplicit? Why has the church got one foot in culture and one foot in, 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 in the word? And we wonder why we're so uncomfortable. We wonder why we're torn apart. And that's what's happening to the church. We're being pulled and we're being fractured. We don't have the shelf life. And because of that, let me show you what culture thinks of the modern day church by showing you a 30 second video. Alvin, sir, can we run this video, please? Please watch. There is a wave of Christian people that I have met on this app and I have found favor among them. Progressive Christians are what the world needs right now. We both agree that religion needs massive amounts of change. Between your flawed Bibles, asinine ideals, and just outright misinformation, we've had enough. So in a Lucifer gang first, I'm here to thank you Christians, progressive Christians, for your assistance in this fight against misinformation. There is a way... When are Satanists thanking the church? I thought light should have no part with darkness. I thought the flesh has nothing to do with the spirit. What has happened to the church when a Satanist, a cultist, a guy that has inked his eyeballs, which means he has gone to the point where he could have lost his vision. Those aren't just contacts he pops in. Here's a guy most likely demon-possessed. Here's a guy who's given himself over to the devil. Is Thanking the church? Because what happened? Church started to play games. The church just said, it's all good. We need to go with the times. This old book is antiquated. This old book, this was my grandpa's book. This was my grandma's book. I need a revision. I need an update. I need to cut some things out. I need to change some things. I need to get rid of some things. I need to rewrite some things. I need, a, I need a, something that doesn't have this kind of shelf life. 
You see, God is saying Christians ought to have some shelf life to them. Shelf life meaning, hey, we keep God on the top shelf. None of this that, oh, man, I'm kind of cold, tired, and I need the preacher man to fire me up, and I'm just going to put God there till the preacher texts me, calls me, or calls me out on my dysfunction. When are we going to get back to the time where we say, you know what? I'm not waiting for somebody else to fire me up and show me the word. I'm going to seek God for myself so that I have some shelf life, so that I can stand the storm. I'm going to be right there. Pastor, you can count on me Sunday after Sunday. Pastor, you can count on me to lead my family, to lead my children. Pastor, you can count on me to push back against culture because I am called to be salt and to be light. And guess what? I'm not the type of salt that's going to be trampled under the foot of men. You know what kind of salt that was? The salt that was worthless. They would use it to salt the roads because they couldn't do anything else with it. And is that what we've become? Something that the world just throws on the dirt, on the ground because they say you are worthless. You have no salt. You're not influencing culture. You're not influencing your family. You're not influencing society. That's why they mock the church. And the church has become a joke today. Because why? The shelf was reserved for God, but we've allowed soccer leagues, baseball leagues, football leagues. I'm tired. I don't want to get up at five o'clock in the afternoon to go to church. Hey, I'm too lazy. Guess what? My wife wants to just sit at home. My husband doesn't want to go, wants to golf, wants to go on the boat. They don't have a good enough Ridge Kids program. They don't have, the pastor preaches too long and he yells too loud and he's too young and his pants are too tight. All these things. And I'm tired of the fact that we make excuses why God is not first and foremost in our life. And if we would finally, and don't just leave it up to the pastor. I'm tired of people that say, well, if the shepherds would just lead the church. How about the sheep take some responsibility? After all, in Genesis, God calls you the pastor, provider, and protector of your family. That responsibility is given to you. All you husbands, I'm not going to make you do this, but I would dare say, if your family ever asks you the question, who our pastor is, and you say to them, my name, you are wrong. You are your family's pastor. You are your family's protector. You are your family's provider. So man up, do the job, take your responsibility. We don't need more Meghan Merkels blaming everybody else, passing the buck. I'm the victim. It woe is me. We've got enough of that in culture. What we need is some men to take some responsibility and say, hey, as for me and my house, we're going to do right. We're going to live right. We've cleared the shelf, top shelf. God, that's where you belong, and we will change culture. You will change society, and it doesn't have to be a flash. You just day in and day out, and your children and their children and your grandchildren will say, I want to be like Dad. I want to be like Grandpa. I want to be like the neighbor. There are some people that don't have a father. You can be their spiritual father. There are some people that don't have a mother. You can be their spiritual mother, and you can influence, and you can guide, and you can direct, and that's what the church is called to. But today, we have punted on our responsibility. We have neglected the calling that God has given to us. And it's time we as the church say, God, you belong on the top shelf. There's nothing else that belongs up there. Get rid of your bowling trophies. Nobody cares. Get rid of your high school football trophies. Nobody want to see those. Get rid of your home videos. And nobody want to watch your highlight video and put God back on the top place. Say, God, this is where you belong in our family. This is where you're going to be. And when you do that, God turns things around. And until you do that, God doesn't turn it around. You say, why? We don't have time. i got to shut it down. But understand this. God takes their defeat at Achan, and God transforms it. Yes, Israel took some shortcuts. And when you take shortcuts, you get cut short. Yes, Israel made some poor decisions. They didn't have a shelf life, and 36 men paid with their lives. 
But yet you and I have a decision. Divine direction or my desires. And God is saying to us tonight, lay your desires at the altar and say, God, I'm giving these to you. The Apostle Paul said this in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless not I, but Christ that lives in me. And the life which I now live by the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He said, every day I got to crucify the flesh. That means every day I got to say, I got these desires, and these desires are at war with God's divine directions. So God, you got to be first. And God, you're going to be first in everything. You're going to be first in my marriage. You're going to be first in my parenting. You're going to be first in my finances. You're going to be first in my thoughts. You're going to be first in my actions. God, you're going to be first. My neighbor's going to know it. My friends are going to know it. Everybody's going to know it. They're going to ask me to work overtime on Sunday, and I can make not just overtime. I can make double time, and you know what? No, no, no. There needs to be priority where everybody sees that, guess what? A few extra bucks isn't going to be worth it. Besides, you're going to get taxed on that, and you're going to raise another tax bracket. It's not worth it. Just come to church. But we have to get back to the shelf. And say, this is the shelf of self. And i got to get all that stuff off. And say, God, you are first and foremost. Let's all stand with heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to ask the worship team to please come to the platform. It's the shelf of self. We live in a culture that says, love yourself, take care of yourself. Idolize yourself. Where God says, deny yourself. Let God take care of those things. You want to know how to make right choices? It's when you come to the shelf of self and say, God, where are you? Where have I neglected you? And at that moment, you put God first. And that's what we need to do is to seek God. Seek him first. And God will reveal himself to us. And he'll begin to work in our hearts and our lives. And tonight, the Holy Spirit is convicting you. And if he's prompting you, and if he's revealing some things in your life, and you say, Pastor, pray with me. Pray for me. Is that you? You slip up a hand. Can I pray for you? I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. Oh, God bless you. Hands up all over. Amen. You may put your hands down. We're old school here. In the moment, the worship team is going to play, and I'm going to open up this altar. And you say, I'm going to do business with God. I'm going I'm to I'm pour my heart out to God, and I'm going I'm to get some things right. I'm going to say this altar is open right now. You don't have to wait for the music to start. They can start anytime they want to. But you and I, we don't need mood music. We don't need none of that. If God is dealing with your heart, you come forward and you slip out, or you can make an altar right there in your seat. As the worship team plays, or maybe you're here tonight. You say, I was invited as a guest. And all as I know is I don't know anything about church. And I'm not just a, just a pretend atheist. I might be a real atheist, and I don't know God, and I want to know God. And I've never invited Jesus Christ in my heart, and, and, and I feel a conviction of my heart. I feel like the Holy Spirit is knocking on my heart's door. And I feel like the Holy Spirit is saying to me, won't you let me in? And if that's you, you say, I've never asked Jesus Christ in my heart. I've never repented of my sin and asked him to come into my life and, and, and wash me thoroughly. If that's you, you say, tonight I want to give my life to Jesus. Is that you? You slip up your hand. Can I pray with you? Anybody like that tonight? You say, hey, tonight I'm giving my life to Christ. Well, if that's you, you can come meet me right afterward. With heads bowed and eyes closed, we have some that are going to prepare to be baptized. And I'm going to invite those that are going to be baptized to slip out. And they can get changed and get prepared, come back in. 
you say, I've never been baptized. I've never taken that next step. And you want to, we've got everything prepped. We've got towels, t-shirts. If you'd like to slip out, we've got Pastor Missile. He'll direct you if you'd like to get baptized tonight. We've got four that they're going to come forward. They're going to be baptized. We're going to give them a moment. But right now, as the worship team plays, let's pour our hearts out to God. We hope you were encouraged by today's message from Pastor Micaiah. If it was a blessing to you, don't forget to share it with a friend or family member this week. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. Get in touch with us by visiting SouthridgeSanJose.com slash connect. Again, that's SouthridgeSanJose.com slash connect.